The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 11, The Dog That Didn't Bark, Jack Anderson and the CIA. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm your narrator, John O'Connor, the author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. In Sherlock Holmes' short story by Arthur Conan Doyle, Silver Blaze, the perpetrator's identity is proven not by something which happened, but something which did not, the dog that didn't bark. In the highly intriguing swirl of events surrounding Watergate, None is more engaging than the participation, or rather lack of same, of world-renowned muckraking columnist Jack Anderson, the dog that didn't bark. For those of you that do not recognize the name, Jack Anderson was for a number of years the king of the muckrakers, the old-fashioned turn-of-the-century name for scandal-seeking investigative reporters, a moniker which reveals the low esteem in which investigators had been held pre-Watergate. Anderson, the syndicated columnist and successor to longtime scandal columnist Drew Pearson, was at the height of his powers in late 1971 and early 1972, at least briefly emerging from the lower echelons of respectability. He had just won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on the Nixon administration's tilt toward Pakistan in the India-Pakistan War, reporting based on leaked confidential national security documents. The reporting was controversial because the Nixon administration had maintained a pose of neutrality, an unfortunate but unintended byproduct of America's silent support of Pakistan was the Pakistani crushing of the minority Bengalis in East Pakistan, ultimately giving rise to an independent Bangladesh. It suffices for our present purposes here to confirm that Anderson was a man of great investigative resources, from whom nothing in Washington of a scandalous note could escape. Unlike today, when numerous media outlets fancy themselves investigative reporters, Anderson was the only nationally known media outlet for sensational exposés, and because of that fact alone received numerous tips. In early 1972, Anderson, whose sources were legendary and his sleuthing indefatigable, exploded another bombshell when his associate Britt Hume broke a scandal only eclipsed by the later Watergate burglary soon to follow. Hume had been provided a memo seemingly authored by hard-drinking ITT lobbyist Adida Beard, boasting of a corrupt deal in which the Nixon administration would drop its objections and lawsuit to stop ITT's purchase of the Hartford Insurance Company in exchange for $400,000 cash and a block of rooms for the planned San Diego nominating convention of the Republicans. This reporting caused a scandalous uproar. In short, Anderson was formidable, energetic, and fearless. And remember, $400,000 in 1972 was an awful lot of money. It is with this legendary muckraking in mind that we note an incident that Watergate researchers rarely scrutinize, an incident which we believe has much to do with the successful cover-up of many of the facts that we are disclosing here. In late 1971 and early 1972, word was making its way around the New York intelligence street, so to speak, that the Nixon administration was planning a break-in of the DNC headquarters in Washington, D.C. Now let's reflect on that date. We're talking about late 1971 and early 1972. Why is this significant? We all know that, in fact, a break-in later occurred. 
Liddy, while preparing his gemstone plan in January 1972, probably starting in mid-month, had never considered the DNC to be anything other than a remote option, and at that only one exercisable during the heat of the campaign when the headquarters might actually have meaningful information. As of December 1971 and January 1972, he had no plans formulated to break into the DNC headquarters. The highly disputable May 1973 testimony of Jeb Magruder, John Mitchell's CRP deputy, was that Mitchell had suggested the Watergate target on March 30, 1972, the first time Magruder allegedly heard about the target, and the day that Mitchell, according to Magruder, first approved a break-in program. For various reasons not pertinent here, Magruder's testimony was in all likelihood false. But the point we make here is that for all White House forces, Watergate's DNC offices had not received mention before March 30, 1972, even if you believe Magruder. These earlier rumors making their way around the New York intelligence milieu came from one A.J. Wollstone Smith, a former British spy with connections to American intelligence. Oddly, Woolley, as he was known, was on the scent as early as December 1971, before Liddy even began formulating the elements of his fatuous gemstone scheme. In early 1972, the rumors were so strong that he passed them on to William Haddad, a small-time New York City muckraker and publisher of the small, now-defunct Manhattan Tribune. Soon, not knowing what to do with this information, Haddad passed it on to Jack Anderson. What he says was a detailed dossier for the world's most prestigious and resourceful muckraker to investigate. Let's stop there. The timing and source of the rumors provide two meaningful inferences. First, it was the Intelligence Committee, Reed, CIA, that was likely behind the rumors and therefore likely a sponsor or co-sponsor of the planned break-in. And second, perhaps someone in the administration, unbeknownst to others, was planning on signing off on this break-in once the budget was approved. But that someone was clearly not Gordon Liddy, who had no plans to go into Watergate and was not even formulating Gemstone in December of 71. The rumors asserted that the reason for the break-in would be to look for evidence of Fidelista contributions, that is money from the Castro regime donated to the Democratic Party. Since this justification for either Watergate burglary was never in the minds of any White House official, and because it was a later justification for the burglary put forth by Howard Hunt and also by the Cuban members of the team, as they understood the purpose, we can only conclude that this rumor about the DNC break-in came ultimately from the CIA, likely through Hunt or the Cubans. Remember, the Fidelista motive was a way that the CIA could claim that this was a national security operation and at the same time claim it was not a CIA's national security operation, but one for the White House purposes. And of course, the White House had no motive to do that and had never discussed any Fidelista type of investigation. What came next is even more intriguing. This hot, delicious scoop was soon thrown in Jack Anderson's lap by Haddad, apparently part of a very lengthy, detailed submission, and then was followed by a second long and detailed summation when Anderson did not respond to the first. Anderson later claimed that he did not respond until he got what he termed was a sloppy, one-page letter from Haddad in early April 1972. At that point, according to Anderson, he did brief checking and found nothing to corroborate the tip, promptly dropping it. He later claimed, absurdly so, that he must have misplaced the first two detailed dossiers that Haddad had sent him. 
One curiosity about this tale is that Anderson's supposed belated assessment of the tip did not occur until conveniently, two weeks after Mitchell's alleged March 30, 1972 approval of the program. This was convenient timing, because the previous referrals, after all, were inculpatory of the CIA, since they occurred before Watergate was a gleam in Mitchell's eye, even a fabricated gleam, as put forth by Magruder in his tale. In other words, Magruder claimed that he had no thoughts of a Watergate break-in until Mitchell supposedly ordered it on March 30, 1972. Liddy had vaguely contemplated it, but it was far down on his list, likely never to occur, and he was somewhat upset when he was told to go into the Watergate, which he considered of no intelligence value. So it wasn't Liddy who was coming up with the Watergate scheme in early 1972. So if Anderson admitted getting notice of a DNC break-in before March 30, 1972, he would be pointing the finger at the true instigator, the CIA. And as we will describe, he did not want to do that. But whether or not Anderson is deemed to be credible about losing these potentially career-enhancing files from Haddad, and never finding them, even more incredibly, that there were those earlier rumors completely destroys Magruder's suspect testimony about Mitchell being the March 30, 1972 father of the ill-advised caper, always vehemently denied by the former attorney general. But Haddad's tip places at least some of the planning for the break-in, as Mark felt originally hypothesized, in the lap of the CIA, planning begun at least by late 1971. Of course, the most solid inference from Anderson's receipt early on of the Haddad files is that the columnist was the dog that didn't bark. In the Holmes novel, the detective infers that the dog knew the intruder who killed a horse, so failed to bark and alarm others. In the case of Jack Anderson, he may have failed to bark, but not just because he knew of the CIA's involvement, but because he also believed his life was threatened if he revealed what the CIA was about to do and ruined their program. In fact, around the time Haddad sent the first dossier in January 1972, the CIA began a blatant intimidation operation aimed at frightening Anderson. Are the two connected? the intimidation program, and the receipt by Anderson of the planned break-in of Watergate. It certainly makes sense. That there was obviously and ominously threatening behavior by the CIA directed toward Anderson showed that the CIA's actions were meant to blatantly intimidate rather than to secretly plan an assassination of the columnists. Clearly visible cars were stationed near the Anderson residence beginning February after surveilling him in January with the stalking agents openly displaying cameras. They were so obvious with their stalking that Anderson's children began laughingly taunting the agents. This intimidation project was known as Operation Mud Hen. There is no evidence that the White House knew of or authorized this operation. As we've discussed earlier, any domestic CIA operation is illegal without presidential approval. Howard Hunt, consistent with our analysis, in order to absolve the CIA of criminal culpability for Operation Mudhead, claimed years later that Charles Colson had authorized an assassination or disabling a poisoning of the columnist, supposedly because of his painfully embarrassing expose of the Nixon administration. According to Hunt's testimony in 1975, Colson so ordered him to explore these thuggish techniques in mid-March 1972. 
Colson had repeatedly denied any such order, but, like all other White House officials at the time, did not have nice things to say about Anderson. So Hunt could easily conjure up presidential approval, as was much of his purpose all along, to legalize the CIA's assassination planning. In later years, Colson and Anderson became quite friendly. So Anderson took advantage of this friendship and asked Colson, now free from any criminal jeopardy, to confirm his assassination order as claimed by Hunt. Colson angrily denounced the notion, highly credibly so. Moreover, there is not a peep on the many hours of White House papers and tapes suggesting any such order or plans, even though there is plenty of grousing about Anderson. If there were a plot against Anderson, common sense suggests, there would have been a per normal Oval Office way, substantial discussion of how to disable or kill Anderson. Perhaps more significantly, if the White House had really authorized an operation against Jack Anderson to be implemented by Hunt and the CIA, there would have been evidence of reports to the White House about the operation. But there is no evidence of such report. Moreover, think about this. Operation Mudhead started in January of 1971 and was clearly all done by CIA agents before Liddy or Hunt even discussed Anderson. So it certainly makes sense that this was a CIA operation from the beginning. Indeed, CIA papers call this Operation Mudhead. At a key juncture of Operation Mudhead, Anderson and the CIA chief Richard Helms had lunch on March 17, 1972 at the Montpelier Room restaurant at the Madison Hotel. The discussion was per an invitation to the columnist from the director himself, and perhaps some preliminary understanding may have been reached at the lunch. In other words, the CIA admits that there was intimidation and there was an Operation Mudhen. They just do not in any way relate that, at least as Hunt later testified, to the plans to assassinate Anderson. Helms later claimed that the lunch was designed to obtain Anderson's promise not to unearth CIA documents about Russia. For various reasons, the supposed discussion of Russian documents made no sense, because Anderson's source for the Russian documents had been taken out of play several months earlier, a yeoman Radford. In short, there was no threat to the CIA about these documents, but there was a threat that Anderson would blow the cover off a Watergate operation that the CIA hoped would legalize many other illegal domestic operations. In short, none of the CIA story makes sense. That is, that the White House ordered an assassination plot against Anderson, but clearly there was, in fact, a three-month CIA Operation Mudhen designed to intimidate Anderson from reporting something the CIA did not want reported. We can also infer, very important for this podcast, that the timing of Operation Mudhen from January into mid-April 1972 is consistent with the DNC break-in tips that Anderson was receiving from William Haddad. It is therefore very rational hypothesis that this whole operation was to intimidate Anderson from blowing the lid off of the CIA's plans to bug the DNC's Watergate offices, the plans that had been relayed by Wollstone Smith to Haddad and on to Anderson. While Anderson and Helms may have made progress towards some tentative understanding during their Montpelier Room lunch on March 17, we infer that the dispute was not concluded with finality until early to mid-April when the ostentatious home surveillance of Anderson stopped. This timing suggests that Anderson then agreed to put down his pen on some unknown subject, with, however, timing nicely fitting with Liddy's having been recently pointed toward Watergate. In other words, Liddy was not given the go-ahead on Watergate until it was clear that Anderson would not be exposing the operation. 
This is nothing, of course, that Liddy knew anything about. Many observers have wondered why there was a long delay after Mitchell's supposed March 30, 1972 approval of the break-in. Liddy was not informed of the order until the end of April, not long after Anderson agreed to see no evil sometime in mid-April. To be sure, on March 24, 1972, one week after Helms and Anderson launched, Hunt invited Liddy to meet with a Dr. Edward Gunn, a supposedly retired CIA poisons doctor, to discuss ways of killing or disabling Anderson. At the conclusion of the meeting, Hunt suggested Liddy pay Gunn $100, which Liddy assumed was part of the tradecraft and which he did with the crisp $100 bill. From our view of the evidence, that $100 bill is equivalent to the casing photo of Lewis Fielding, that is to say, proof of White House approval, should the CIA ever need it to prove White House authorization of whatever it intended to do to Jack Anderson. So that Hunt had Liddy pay Gunn $100 was clearly designed to put a Nixon stamp on any killing or disabling that may have later occurred. The bets here are that the $100 bill was preserved in CIA evidence lockers, fingerprints intact. Clearly, this meeting was part of Operation Mud Hen, designed to protect the CIA should it be caught poisoning Anderson. So, a logical inference is that the intimidation of Operation Mud Hen, admitted at least in part substantially by the CIA, caused Anderson as a dog not to bark about the Watergate plans. Had the muckraker revealed a potential break-in, all that would have transpired was the scuttling of plans to no great acclaim for Anderson. On the other hand, to the CIA, ruining its DNC scheme would have prevented it from receiving what it likely saw as a pension-saving, get-out-of-jail-free card, giving White House sanction to widespread agency illegality in its prostitute taping program. Why is Operation Mudhen, we may ask, pertinent to our exploration of the Watergate mysteries? First, as we have suggested earlier, it is a template for the Watergate burglaries. That is, a CIA operation that could be blamed at least partially on the White House. As Hunt sucked Liddy into the gun meeting, we suggest that Hunt likely lured Dean into the enticing fruits of the DNC prostitution calls. And of course, this is consistent with the CIA through Hunt and Bennett luring the White House into the fielding burglary. Of course, if Mudhen was about hushing the Haddad dossier, it is circumstantial proof that the CIA was behind Watergate. In later days, the CIA would show its willingness, as in Mudhen, to protect its years of legal operations with threatened murder. To conclude this episode, we note that the world's fiercest, loudest, Pulitzer Prize-winning dog, Jack Anderson, did not bark. After months of CIA intimidation, convinced him to stay silent. Anderson's silence, after receiving two detailed dossiers from Haddad, is strong proof that the CIA was involved in Watergate through the dog that didn't bark. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on this same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials, and remove the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.